I'm Richard Dodd, and you're listening to the Ecology Academy podcast. This is a show where we get to talk and learn about all things ecological, including interviews with top ecologists, both employers and employees, those working with ecologists, and also aspiring and inspiring career-seeking individuals setting out to make a difference. The show aims to provide you with insights, advice, and inspiration to help you succeed and excel as an effective ecologist and to make a real difference to our natural environment. Joining me today on the Ecology Academy podcast is John Cranfield. Now, John is a director of Herpetologic Limited, a company that provides expert ecological consultancy on amphibians, reptiles, and their habitats across the UK. With over two decades of experience as a herpetofauna specialist, John has extensive knowledge and skills in handling protected species licensing, using various methods such as pitfall trapping, aquatic funnel trapping, eDNA and newt detection dogs. As a recording officer for the Hampshire Isle of Wight Amphibian and Reptile Group, John is an active member of the Amphibian and Reptile Groups of the UK, a network of volunteers dedicated to the conservation of native native herpetofauna. So, John, welcome to the Ecology Academy podcast. Yeah, nice to be here. Thanks. That's it. I always struggle over struggle over the word herpetofauna. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is that that's the correct pronunciation? Is it or pronunciation? Yes, herpetofauna. Yeah, herpetofauna. Oh, um, that right. That's that's good. And my company point. name is also quite memorable because most people stumble over it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know, we I've, I've got through those, so that, that's the good thing. So, John, uh, say so you're welcome. But um, yeah, I mean, let's jump straight into this. So, in terms of yeah, so tell me, tell me, we've had a little conversation before we started recording. You know, you've got this varied career, but tell us a little bit about your background and um, how you got into amphibians and reptiles. Well, it goes all the way back to when I was 10 years old, when I was a keen birder and I used to go out bird watching with my dad and I was, it was, we had moved to a new, new area and we were investigating looking in the local woodlands and scrub and stuff for birds. And my dad spotted a piece of corrugated iron in a horse field. And he got me and my brother, I still remember it now, actually. And he lifted it up and there was two slow worms underneath. And I had never seen a slow worm before then. And that was where my passion for reptiles particularly started. Prior to that, we had always had ponds and we used to rear frogs from frog spawn and all the things you used to do in the garden ponds and stuff, previous address. And mm. we had built ponds in this new house as well. But then the, it was the the idea that you can go and catch things look look like snakes locally. And that's where my interest started. And then I went to university and studied marine biology. What year was that? When, when, did, did you, when did you start? That, when we started at 1996, okay, yeah. I started at Portsmouth University, mm. a biology degree, which I specialise into marine biology. And I studied shortfin pilot whales for my dissertation. And at the same time, we had marine turtles out there as well. So there was always this sort of herpetofauna field feel to my interest in, in biology and things like that. And then I did an environmental management and postgraduate certificate and I was, at the same time, I was getting involved with the Amphibian Reptile Groups, which is a network of groups, volunteer groups across the UK. And at the time, it was the Herpifauna Groups of Britain and Ireland. And I was 
carrying out surveys in Hampshire, which I was based down here during university. So it was basically my hobby. And then when I left university and college, I had given a talk about great crested newts to a or to back up back at my mum and dad's area to I think it was a wildlife society. And someone in the audience had rec- had a was working at the Wildlife Trust and they had a request for a newt ecologist from a consultancy in Peterborough. And it was the Robert Stebbins consultancy. Yeah. So and he recommended me. So they contacted me. And then I went up to Peterborough to see Bob's office, which was his house. I also saw his oversized garden pond, which he had in the region of three or 400 clumps of frog spawn. He's a big frog fan and he was nurturing this population. And it's like, you know, a population in a garden in the middle of Peterborough. And it was, we went through a new mitigation scheme that he wanted me to work on. He wanted me to become, it was quite easy to become the licensee and relatively straightforward. I had a bit of experience in new surveys. I, that was my first job in Bedfordshire and I was organizing the monitoring surveys and also the people that were carrying out pitfall trapping. And that's where I stumbled into consultancy, basically. Prior to that, I had one previous experience of consultancy the year before, which was a reptile translocation. And it was quite horrendous, (laughs) really. It was very much lip service, you know, put a fence around the edge of the site, move all the animals to the outside. And it was a, a horrible experience that I didn't want to repeat, but... When I went up to Peterborough and spoke to the consultancy and and how they viewed the work and, you know, it was down to me to decide what to do on site, which was the complete opposite of my, of the previous job, which was just a subcontract when I wasn't listened to, but so that's where I started and that's where I established my company in 2003 and it's just affecting my job is, was my hobby and that's what I do for a living. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like you see a, a large part of your life has been dedicated so far yeah, to, uh, yeah, to p- better fauna. So, in terms of, I mean, I mean, because I've been on, I put my hands up, I've been on a couple of your training courses, which are brilliant, by the way. And this is going back a fair few years, I must admit. Um, so, yeah, I, I always remember taking away from your training courses, a how passionate you are about the subject matter, and also the. Obviously, you're teaching people about the survey techniques and you know mitigation and so forth. But it's also what I've taken away from from the courses is your the how you want to advance survey and an understanding of the conservation part of of uh, as a Newton reptile work as well. So that, I mean that's what I've, I've taken away from the courses. Is that fair to say that it's not just about um you know the day job? It's also about um in maybe a bit more more progressive. Yeah, I mean it's it becomes like protected species, particularly well, particularly reptiles. They have a poor deal when it comes to what people do for them. It's always about. You know, the surveys is the magic seven. You do seven survey visits. You assess how many animals are on site potentially. And that gives you a number of how many days you can have to trap out in order to carry out your obligations towards them. But there's no real, it's one of the main sort of criticisms of reptile mitigation or even amphibian mitigation is the lack of follow-up and management 
which is required to make a successful mitigation strategy. I mean, there are some cases where, say, you've got grass snakes in a garden and you're going to redevelop the garden and you find one grass snake or a few grass snakes in a compost bin or in the garden pond. And then you basically that, yeah, the grass snakes may be there for a certain part of the year, but then they disappear. And that's what, you know, you can do a lot of good for grass snakes by, for example, creating more ponds in a woodland somewhere or creating egg laying sites for them rather than focusing too much on the individuals. Obviously, female snakes are important because they need to go and find egg laying sites and breed and produce the next generation. But it's it's also like a set sort of survey, assess, impacts, and then go immediately to translocation. And that's possibly because reptiles are left possibly as an afterthought. That's what it sort of feels like. And it's sort of protected species are separated from the ecology or even biodiversity, which is a bit of the rage at the moment. But of course, it's it's a separate thing to doing those other things. And and adders particularly is another interest of mine. I've I have got a training course coming up in in Essex in April, which we're going to be launching the booking form for that quite soon. And we're looking at a vulnerable species like adders, which are quite widespread, but also quite vulnerable to land use changes and development. And it's more thinking outside the box rather than just sticking to you know rigidly to the to the guidelines. Because I mean there is a, lots of flack that's thrown at consultants that they're looking to make as much money as possible from a project and that's probably fed into by the you know that in great crested newts you've got you know 30 days 60 days 90 days it all sort of increases the cost of of a project whereas there are other options obviously that are open to us now but there's also it's you know the the ecology of the animal needs to be thought about a bit more and integrate it with biodiversity okay well thank you for that so in terms of looking at your career i mean just focus on career case and newts for for the, for the time being so in terms yeah. of i mean how did you uh, yeah how did you obtain your survey license what was the process when you went for your survey license when you first obtained it and then we could talk then a little bit about, about what's required now or your understanding of what's required now yeah thinking back it would have been an english nature i think it would be english nature license that's the right name isn't it yeah. before that was the ncc and it was an english nature license and it was you have to get references back then and what happened is that you they were training courses to go on and you can get you can go on a training course and you get like one sort of reference or referee perhaps they're also volunteer yeah, volunteer groups that you go out on surveys and then eventually you build up your experience and then you apply for your own survey license. And I think it was slightly different back then. The rules were slightly different. I think egg searching wasn't licensable because it wasn't considered to be too... Oh, it was it the other way around? I think torching depends on the the strength of your torch. For, for a while, torching was was a license, unlicensed method. Because it didn't, they didn't feel that it had disturbed newts as much as what they do now with big, powerful torches. So back then, that's what I could seem to remember. That's how I got my license for all counties of England. And now it's sort of evolved into class licenses. So I've got a class two survey license, 
which enables me to do aquatic funnel trapping, take by hand, and so that's using artificial cover objects, aquatic funnel traps, and torching, egg searching, and it's and did I say yeah, and pitfall trapping. I can do limited pitfall trapping. I've recently registered our reserve for some pitfall trapping this March, where we're gonna be carrying out limited numbers of pitfalls on drift fences around breeding ponds for I think it's up to 20 days is I can do that as many sites as I could get round I suppose but I need to register that with Natural England before I do that so it's slightly different now I mean it's it's you see that often in LinkedIn that people report when they get a new license and new licenses are still being given to to people and they often have class one licenses because I don't think there's much focus on pitfall trapping but it's Pitfall trapping is interesting because you can find out where newts are dispersed to and you can find whether certain habitats you've created previously have been have been adopted by the newts, you know. So I gather it's a similar sort of process, but it's a, definitely if you have never had a license, you go up to do some training and you need to have references from people that you've worked with. I think that's how it's how it's done now. I mean, because I'm now on a class license, I renew my license every year, and you add you can add techniques. So if I wanted a Drewsby trap license, I'd have to go and get training to do that because it's a separate. I think it's a separate license now. It's I think it's called a box trap. So I don't generally have Drewsby license, but I do use aquatic funnel traps, which are not just bottle traps but things that minnow traps or shrimp traps. And the other thing that I probably need to look into is for disease screening, I would have to add swabbing, taking samples from a live amphibian. And then the other thing would be using endoscopes. So if you're using detection dogs and you find a burrow, which is large enough to get an endoscope down, I would need to add that to my license potentially, because if you're using a light on the end of an endoscope down a tunnel, and you find a newt, then you're technically disturbing it. <laughs> so there's all these sort of pitfalls that you may need to add to a license to be able to be legal, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I remember going back onto that training course I attended with yourself. I mean, I say this is quite a few years ago. And I think at the time, I'm going I'm to say I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a newt person. So in terms of, um, I mean, I've got limited knowledge and um, I'm certainly not, you know, yeah, I think I've lapsed my license and, you know, now. But at the time, I remember you mentioning about these aquatic funnels and how I've, I've, you may use the word bonkers that Natural England weren't recognising the use of them. I don't know if that was, I, I can't remember what year that was, but I, did they recognise? Oh, I, I know. Yeah, because it's, it's to do with the to applying for a sort of a traditional protected species license mm. so it but was was a european protected species license is what's te- deemed as a traditional license and what the issue is is that you need to what they didn't recognize was the use of aquatic funnel traps other than ones which are made from plastic bottles that's that was the issue the thing is is if you're using density figures then that has some application because if you're putting out a number of traps in a pond and you're using ones which are more effective, then you're going to have a slightly different or a slightly higher number of newts perhaps than you would with just bottle traps. Yeah. But the problem with that is, is that it's just based on 
very wide margin. So a medium population is from 11 to 99. And you'll go in some if you're catching nearer the 99 figure in bottle traps. It, you, it's trap density dependent. So it's there were issues with that. But I think a lot of people got around it by just not mentioning that they, they, were, they were just aquatic funnel traps. And the, 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 the uh, method statement said bottle traps, I think. And they just didn't mention it. I mean, the other the other thing is, is when they don't accept your license because you haven't done bottle trapping, even though you've caught, even though you've seen plenty in torch counting, if you haven't done three out of the four methods, then they would knock you back on that as well. And a good fifteen years ago, I think there was a site that we were we became involved in where the ecologist had done a survey, and he's been doing surveys for. For donkey years so he did a torch survey counted 50 newts in in the uh, population in two ponds so he felt that he didn't need to put bottle traps in and they said no you got to repeat it so he repeated it the next year and he got the same figure from torch counting but a lot less in the bottle traps that he had put out so he was right but it's this sort of dogmatic approach to the guidance i mean it is guidance it's not the law but also, it's also the piecemeal way of applying the mitigation guidelines. So it's down to, in the mitigation guidelines in 2001, it was down to the professional judgment of the consultant. And just like if you were using pitfall traps, you have like a note about how they are potentially dangerous for not just newts, but other animals as well. So you have to be careful with using pitfall traps. You can't leave them for too long, et cetera, et cetera. And the same guidance is is put out for aquatic funnel traps. And uh, aquatic funnel traps made out of plastic bottles can be really dangerous, especially if they're left too long. So you have to be really careful with that. So the best way to to avoid that is to just use the information that you collect as torch counting. If it's clear water and you're counting all the newts, there's no need to put the bottle traps in because you're basically... If you've got 100 newts in a pond and you're putting bottle traps in, then you're putting them at risk because you've got 20 newts in one bottle trap. There's a real risk of animals asphyxiating and, and passing out and dying, you know. So it was just the, those little debates that we've had along the way. <laughs> so, And I think some people just, you know, they, they put in torch count data and they, they explained why they just use torch counting. And I think that Natural England would accept that with with but they would give you like a advice at the bottom of the the license saying why you would you should use the the trapping as well so it's yeah it can be bonkers at times with the way that things are applied but also it's not strictly sticking to the guidance as well which allows for things to happen in terms of i suppose progression over the years then we you know your experience to say you know that that that's uh, you know you obviously you've got considerable experience over is a 20 plus years it, it when it comes to putting together you know some sort of mitigation license application uh, in obviously there's various methods that various routes we can go down now i mean before i think it was just like i mean again my limited knowledge maybe just one traditional full license routes now we've got yeah. impact we've got you know district licensing and and so forth what, what, how do you perceive you know the, these changes um, over the past few years i mean uh, i can't remember what year it was but i became a registered consultant for a low impact class license which 
effectively is covering the things that you would not normally have licensed in the past. So finding a new under a, a railway sleeper in a garden, for example, was an example in our training that you would need a license because you're moving a newt out of the way. But in the past, you would say, well, that's not really having an impact on the newts. Technically, you are disturbing it because it's in a place of shelter, but then moving it to somewhere to safety would would be fine. And I think in a development sort of sense, it's you know the low impact on a small number of newts on a small parcel of terrestrial habitat outside. You can't work on ponds. And then it's, I think it as they were bringing in district licensing and, and things like that, the legal advice sort of meant people were using non-licensed method statements. So if they had situations where there weren't any newts and you could put your development on there, you can avoid getting a license if you're not impacting newts, for example. If you're not having to pick them up and move them, then that's not a licensable action. And I think also the advice about putting exclusion fencing up, as long as the newts can migrate around a site and get to their breeding sites and their hibernation sites, then again, that's not breaching the legislation technically. And I think it's this sort of being emboldened to provide the evidence to enable you to assess the situation in terms of its impact on conservation status. And now and now we do have what are called district level licensing, which also includes organizational licenses, which are held by nature space on behalf of various organizations. And I do know other companies have got organizational licenses as well, which covers a, a working area, basically. So for district level licensing, the name sort of comes from a district or a county and generally speaking that's administered by natural england or a local authority so an example would be dorset council they they administer the natural england license and then you've got the nature space license which is effectively an organizational license that covers the same sort of area and they they are two different licenses at the Hurt Workers meeting, they explained that Natural England has a particular license which worked on a district level, and then you have Nature Space, which is an organisational licences which serves the same function and has the same goal. So, to conserve newts in a geographical area, basically, and you, if you've got a development site, you apply to to join the license, and what they do is a desktop desktop study to assess the impact, and then you pay. A conservation payment to join the license to offset your impact on on the population and that's not mandatory so none of the none of the district licenses are mandatory you if you have no impact on newts then you don't need a license and that can also be an avenue if you've got a development which you have a small impact so up to 12 months development you know the project timetable and you're impacting some terrestrial habitat you can register the site under a low impact class license for example and that has happened as well in in places where the district license would be prohibitive in terms of cost and also if you've gone down the planning process and you don't have things attached to the planning permission relating to newts you have to go back to the council and reopen that to in order for district licenses to work so the low impact class license and a traditional license is often post planning permission basically yeah 
So, so in terms of when you're advising, you know, advising your clients, yeah. So we're in putting your consultancy hat on. So advising your clients, you know, you come across a piece of land, and let's say, let's say it's let's say it's in Dorset. Let's say it's in Dorset just for the time being. I mean, how do you navigate? How do you how do you advise your clients in terms of which license route to go? down and i'm i'm using i'm being very you know this from a very simplistic point of view as in imagine i i've got i know nothing about and this is quite true know very little or nothing about licensing at all i'm your client how would you advise me you've you've come across a piece of land you found newts on it tell me about what you found and what we're going to be doing in terms of licensing yeah it depends on i think dorset is natural england so they have risk maps so the likelihood of finding newts in a certain area which is modeled on survey information and environmental dna surveys of ponds which they did over i think it was 2017 2018 2019 on on various counties and it's modeled and then you have these areas which are risk maps so if you haven't got any survey information on a site if you've got ponds within 250 meters of the red line boundary for example I mean, a normal course of events would be that you would go and survey them for a plan application. Under the district license, it has, if you just, just go straight, it depends on what, what the development is, how big it is, how many ponds you've got, for example. So if someone wants to do, say, a golf course, which they've got a sizable number of ponds on it with lots of newts in them um, that we know from historic records, say, you would advise to go and see, you know, you devise your plan application to to basically join the district license and you can get, you know, the conservation payment. And that's where it gets a bit interesting because it can can be a substantial amount of money before planning. And sometimes that's not cost effective. So it's 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 reviewing what information you have. I mean, there are situations where people have done reptile surveys because you still have to do reptile surveys you can join the district license you still have to do other ecology so dormice and water voles or anything else has to happen as well so an example would be for reptile surveys you put out tins and felts and things like that and then you find newts under those felts and tins but you've got no ponds on site but you do know there's great crystal newts there now in that situation, you can you can probably still rely on the risk maps under Natural England's license. As soon as you have newts in ponds, the risk maps are taken away, and then it's I think for every pond that you've got newts in, it's a four times multiplier for each pond conservation payment. I mean that's what they're called. So it you know it makes sense not to carry out the surveys. <laughs> for the purposes of the ecological surveys, you can assess them for, you know, their suitability. And it's, so you would, you, in some cases, you would go straight to try and join the district license and see it's down to the client ultimately, and they can do it themselves. They don't really need to do it with an ecologist. That's the other thing that district licensing, it seems to push out new ecologists, albeit they would be advising you know, ecologists will be advising their clients and then they apply and then they have the conservation payment. But if if I have had cases where the conservation payment is just just not affordable, then we look at how we would do the development 
if we're before planning, we can apply the mitigation hierarchy, for example, avoiding the impacts in the first instance. Can we move stuff around to retain important habitats? It's all a similar sort of thing in BNG is following the mitigation hierarchy, which is just as important in Great Chris Newts as well. And then it's hopefully you would have a biodiversity action plan, you know, like a management plan, and you would look to maximise the opportunities for newts in the area as well. So it's it's always the mantra that I've always heard in the early noughties was that we all know how to look after newts and it's to build ponds and create woodlands. And that's the main thing that we want to do. And so if we do that on site or if we do it by providing money to a off-site provider, that's that's what's good for newts is plenty of ponds and plenty of terrestrial habitat in the countryside. So that's how I would look at things and how I'd advise them. It's it's really down to a specific case by case basis, really. Okay. And in in terms of your, I mean, I'm just asking you, you know, in terms of your knowledge and experience of you know elsewhere. So I mean, do you think that there may be there's an I don't know how to phrase this, you know, it, an over reliance. An over-reliance on using district licences, or as, do they actually serve a purpose? Uh, in some cases, yes, they would, they would serve a purpose where you can't retain habitat on site and stuff, and you have to get a licence to move newts out of the way. You know, you, you still have an obligation to newts on site, so you need a licence to, to be able to move them. So in some cases, a di- joining a district licence would be the possibly the quickest way to get that license and you would take steps to avoid being reckless you know damaging newts and damaging their habitats and stuff like that it's it's they do serve a purpose in certain cases but then the golf course example we have 27 ponds on the golf course and the conservation payment is quite hefty and you have to work with Natural England or Nature Space to do, you know, to provide them with enough information to reduce that payment to an acceptable level. Even when you're retaining some of the habitats which are important for the needs, that they're, you know, Natural England will consider them lost, even if they're being retained. And it's they do drop the conservation payment in order to to facilitate the, you know, the development. And in that way, you are facilitating keeping important habitats for newts which will continue they will continue to use them even with a development around the sites we've got numerous sites where i think the oldest mitigation site i know of was in 1987 and they were building a car park in the back of a civic offices and they found newts and they were going to fill the pond in but the mitigation back then was to keep the pond and they put in tunnels through quite old walls and things to residential areas and i surveyed that site in 2021 and it was still a medium population in that pond because they were connected to the surrounding residential areas so we know that newts will survive in suburban and urban areas for quite some time they're long long long-lived animals so yeah their generations will go on and on and on as long as they've got somewhere to breed and somewhere to shelter over winter and things and it's so, so retaining stuff is important in terms of biodiversity and and newt conservation, as well as creating new habitats for the for them to colonise. So, it's just these little quirks that you know means that the costs really mount up if you've got too much of something already, like great crested newts. It's 
I'm, I'm losing my train of thought now. <laughs> no, see, it, I mean, I'm just looking back. Say, I mean, say, you know, when I used to do new work, new new survey work, you know, it was that standard, you know, going out and, you know, the bottle traps, the putting out the, you know, the doing the torching, the egg searches, you know, and that was pretty much it really but now we have I mean, there seems to be no, more novel techniques coming in now so we got you mentioned it before about using detection dogs and eDNA so I think you know how is this and you know obviously more tools how has this affected what you do as a conservationist consultant and also you know what it means for great aggressive new conservation yeah I think it's the technology of Environmental DNA in ponds is being used to monitor ponds in a much, much wider scale. I know that to set up the district licenses, they had to survey hundreds, and, well, I think it was thousands of ponds, and they used like one visit to go and sample a pond to find out if present newts are present or not. Mm-hmm. And they linked that back to habitat suitability assessments on ponds. And that was fed into the model and it churns out this sort of, you know, where newts are in the landscape. Now, models, it's helpful because you can do so many, so many ponds over a very large area. And it's, but the thing is, it's limited in terms of what it can tell you. It can only tell you if the newt DNA is present within the ponds. The technology isn't set up to tell you how many newts are in there, for example. You... There is a weak correlation to the score that you get from the DNA results. So there's a score from 1 to 12 out of 12, which is the higher number sort of weakly correlates with higher numbers of newts in in the ponds. So it's what what has actually happened in in the survey field is that projects which have got hundreds and hundreds of ponds, they triage the ponds uh, like we used to, you know, with distance, barriers whether they're polluted got fish all those sort of things you used to do before and then quite a lot of the countryside ponds are in a real dire state you know some of them really really rubbish so the last thing you want to do is as a company is to go back there four times so this technology enables you to go there small window get a negative result and then you don't have to go back to that pond and it's it's a tool to discount ponds from further survey work which in a lot of cases is fine because the ponds are in such a horrible state you know they're silted up they're overgrown i remember seeing in a pond that i visited for 2013 i think it was for natural england and the new enhancement project and it was a tire dump it was full of tires (laughs) the farmer was just dumping tires in a big pond and it's like you know I wasn't even going to dip my net in to see if it had any water quality. It probably probably would dissolve the net, you know. So it was an eye-opener. A lot of the ponds in the countryside are in a real terrible state. And for newts, the best thing to do is to restore those ponds or to build new ponds and lots of them. So the technology is is good, but there are repercussions. You know, I think people are just basically doing DNA surveys for newt surveys. That's it. They just go out and do DNA surveys. And then perhaps they're joining district licenses. And in some cases, people perhaps don't even see what a newt, don't even actually physically see a newt in their day-to-day work, perhaps, which is slightly worrying because it's 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 always good to have newts in the hand and show people. And even your clients, you know, 
often they've said, oh, I've never seen a newt. Mm. So if you've got a bucket full of them and show them, it gives a tangible thing. But we're going to lose that as we move more towards strategic or, you know, modelled stuff elsewhere. You know, if you charge a client for a service, they need to know what, what they're being charged for. But, in you know, I'm sure some clients are happy to just solve the problem of needs by paying money somewhere else and then they don't have to worry about it. But it's, as as me as a new conservationist, it's, you know, my, my work will change undoubtedly in the future. And I just need to fit myself into the system where it, where I can do the yeah you know, the most good really. Pond creation, for example, it's really really good. You can you know create ponds for the district license in your area if you've got land, and people are you know people are creating lots of ponds. I mean, Natural England particularly are creating thousands of ponds over the last five years, which is probably never been attempted before yes. in this country. So there are some really good aspects to it mm. as well. And and the role of detection dogs as well now then. So, you know, that's come along and it's, a, it's really come a thing in the last, uh, I want to say like last five years, so maybe a, bit, a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It was, it was interesting when district licensing came in first. I think a lot of people were told, don't bother with detection dogs for newts. Mm. And I'm pretty certain that's what people advise some people. But I think they have come into their own, really. I mean, it's they're so much more efficient. I mean, a terrestrial survey would take at least 60 days, 30 to 60 days with lots of plastic fencing and pitfall traps. And you basically, you know, all over the site, you've got all these fences and stuff. It would just take a considerable amount of time to determine whether newts are on a site. You can do physical surveys, you know, go out at night with a torch, look under things. But you can you can find newts, presence of newts in a terrestrial habitat, just in a morning. You know they they do cover a lot of land, and they they are so much more, you know, so much more uh, sensitive to finding those newts. We're properly trained and validated dogs, and it's it's just it's a bit of a game changer, really, in terms of of assessing terrestrial habitats. Mm. And you can avoid those impacts. That's the key thing. It's a, making sure that you avoid impacts on newts. So therefore, you don't have to go down licensing in quite a lot of cases, really. And also, when you're implementing a license, you need to make sure you're not killing or injury killing or injuring animals when you're removing a fence, for example. But that may not happen so much in the future. A lot less fencing going in, a lot less plastic, which I think is a good thing. Excellent as well <laughs> no no I, I, yeah i mean i think it's you know it, it seems to be like a, a really a, well pop well increasing in popularity the technique as i, I say and i say we, we we've, we've covered a, a little bit about uh, detection dogs on on a previous podcast in terms of i just want to bring our attention to the natural england policies and i don't know but have you you know have you used natural england policies in the past and if you have how have you how have you used them and how and is it is it just a tool in the art you know to, to use or is it something that um you know you know we should only use occasionally i think it's i think yeah when they came in it was to try and reduce you know try and reduce a dogmatic approach to licensing you know i think delays to projects because you haven't got the survey information maybe it was two years old or you've just got torch counting on a pond for example but you 
you know, you normally you would be told to go back and do the full set of surveys. And mm. uh, whereas what you would do is that you would take that information and the habitat information and you would make a professional judgment and then you apply the I think it's EPS policy four, four yeah. assessing the impacts and you, you assess the, the worst case scenario and putting mitigation into your application. I think the big thing was things like quarries where, you know, trapping out quarries with newt fencing is quite dangerous. <laughs> and I think there was a project by, I'm trying to remember his name now. He's from Atkins Realist and it's gone out of my head. Oh no, that's terrible. It might come back to me. Oh, we'll come back to that <laughs> one. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. there was a quarry in like for some significant time they were doing mitigation where they weren't trapping out newts because mm. the quarry was moving around and digging up new areas. And what they found was is that the newts, Luke, listen, Luke Gorman oh, from okay, yeah. Atkins Realist. Really? I, I think that's the new name for that's Atkins. Atkins Realist, yeah. And that's where that policy, policy three came from, was a lot of his work uh, with the quarry project, where he basically, all he was doing was, you know, digging new ponds, basically, with the quarrying works. So as they moved into a new area, they left lots of water bodies and lots of, you know, diverse, structurally diverse habitats. And with quarries in general, if if you've got a large quarry, and you'll have areas which haven't been worked for 40 odd years, you know, they've got scrub on them and and water bodies and things like that. And the combination of the two meant that that newts are fine. They they, you know, they they really do well in those sort of areas. But what was was happening was, you know, people were going in with with fencing down sheer faces of you know, quarries and stuff and trying to trap out newts from those areas. And it and it quite often you would find that you wouldn't be catching many newts. So, so what they applied was the, you know, it became the policy to free, I think it was. Use a temporary habitat, I think that one is, yeah. Yeah, so you, you allow newts to colonise habitats, mm. which are going to be developed in the future. And it's it can be really successful. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I don't think I've applied it myself recently because I think it also, you know, you have to go to a slightly different part of the licensing process to in order to, you know because there are charges for different types of licenses and it, it makes it more complicated so but i would apply it again if it was available if if i had a situation where we couldn't join the district license say there wasn't one and we had a client that had a certain project that we could create lots of mute habitat then you would apply those principles those policies i think you're allowed to apply two on on a mitigation strategy right but it's all about maximizing the benefit for newts you know you just need lots of ponds lots of terrestrial habitat and then you need the follow-up management and that's the thing that district licenses are doing outside of a red line boundary is that they're doing the creating the ponds and then they're yeah the follow-up surveys come through the funding that come from development so in a sense it's it's large-scale mitigation which I think a lot of lot of the time you can't really do with a you know like a single site because generally speaking you don't sort of work outside your area unless you can compulsory purchase land next door for example as part of the process and I have I have worked on projects where that that was able to be implemented and it's just the follow up 
the follow-up is really important. The monitoring and the, the follow-up management is really, really important. So that's one of the, I mean, because I think mitigation licenses, they sort of last for five years. So five years worth of monitoring, but that's it. It, it sort of stops. But you need to go on for a lot longer in order to to maintain new populations. And do you think do you think that's uh, as you say that's I mean, I mean one of the questions? Like I said we're coming to the end of, sort of our time today. But is that one of the sort of um, limitations of licenses per se? Is that um, the the number of monitor you know is monitoring effective in terms of the licensing requirements? Or as you, as you may be alluding to, that longer periods may be more beneficial. Yeah, it's it's definitely to, to, in order to get that uplifting status, you do need to manage ponds on a, a rotational basis, and really just creating new ponds in an area. But then within a license, I think the monitoring sort of stops about five years, but then the management continues because if you've got a management plan that goes into the license, but there's no further monitoring, and that is. That is one of the main sort of uh, criticisms of of you know site based mitigation work is that I mean largely the narrative is it doesn't work for newts it's it's better to be off site and where you can create lots of ponds etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's and you know you just build the ponds and newts will come <laughs> it's what the general mantra is but I think even where we've got a site in Essex where we've got thousands of newts and we've created new ponds. It has taken some time for them to to colonize and actually use them because the when you do a new mitigation scheme, you you plant up ponds with broadleaf aquatic plants. It's all making it as suitable a pond for newts to breed in as quickly as possible. Yeah. You don't do that with district licenses. You build a pond, it's completely bare, and it's all natural colonization. The newts will find them, but it's just not giving them the right sort of environment. And it's what we've been doing for, you know, new ecologists have been doing as a matter of course. You take some of the water mint, for example, from the pond that's going to be destroyed and you put it in the new pond and you establish it that way. I mean, the Neverden site is the nature site that I managed and what we found out was an ecologist that worked for us, he spotted plants in the ponds that we were destroying and he felt that they're really important and he moved them mm. over as well. Yeah. And we've managed to to increase the number of ponds from the two that we lost. We now have six. We've, I think it's a fine leaf water drop work. And it's just one of these things to establish a pond quickly. You, you do need to plant it up. But I think the the criteria for the district license ponds is that it's, it's just a, it's 150 square meters minimum and there's no planting up. So it's something that you have to get used to. As a new technologist, you you do like to move stuff over. <laughs> I'm wambling. But it's, I mean, there are flaws in both or in every action, every scheme that you join. There are little quirks and things that you have to deal with, and and also when you sign up to the to the any of the licenses, if they haven't provided the habitat, then you have to wait for that to be provided before you start your development. So. It's, it's not always plain sailing. And I think what I would do in the future is probably have a hybrid sort of license where you have delivery on a development site as well as the remnant impacts delivered elsewhere. So 
because I think there are some sites where you've got significant amounts of public open space where you can put ponds in or you've got existing ponds and they can be part of the delivery of the strategic license in the area as well. Mm-hmm. But that's not how it was, how it's been, how it was, it, it was made basically. I, I think with the nature space organization or district license, there is a bit of, you know, you can, you can put in your survey information and your mitigation and that would have an impact on, on perhaps the conservation payments Whereas Natural England, they're quite rigid that anything inside the red line boundary is lost and that's what you have to mitigate for. But I think I have had cases where they've, they've re-evaluated the situation because ponds are being kept. And one example that we had was a old moat which was being restored as part of a farm conversion and they had taken it that it was being lost. But of course... It's an ancient, scheduled ancient monument, so it was never never going to be lost. So they reduced the conservation payment. So there is this sort of negotiation with the Natural England teams and the nature space teams to to get, you know, um, the best outcome for, for all, all involved, really. Great. Okay, well, well, John, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I mean, in terms of, uh, I say, the sort of final question, you, you mentioned about there was something coming up in, in April, you say, um, that maybe want to remind us about. Yes, it's on a site with lots of great crested newts, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's actually to do with adder ecology survey and mitigation, and it's in our April the sixteenth is the first workshop, and we're basing that at the Langdon Hills Golf and Country Club, which is a site with plenty of ponds on it, but also a number of adders as well, and we're going to be going through adder mitigation. surveys and techniques in april time and it's going to be the booking form is going to be released in well by next week so people can join up and we would hope to have a series of workshops because i'm sure people will be signing up and will fill up quite quickly so rightio okay well uh, i think this podcast will probably go out in early march so (laughs) so you you hopefully get some, some from there but other than that, I mean, in terms of, I mean, what advice would you give? I mean, look at someone at the very start of their career. They want to get into maybe, you know, you know, neutral reptile conservation, looking for maybe advancing their skills and knowledge. How how would you advise like a young, or say young, someone in their early career as an ecologist um, in terms of develop their skills and knowledge? Ah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say... Definitely try and keep up with the old sort of field techniques as well as the new technologies. I think have a, a base, you know, you can volunteer for things at the Amphim Reptile Groups or RUK or Amphim Reptile Conservation. Particularly myself, I'm I'm a recorder of the Hampshire Isle of Wight Amphim Reptile Group and we have surveys ongoing uh, at ponds for amphibians and We've had a great year in Hampshire for frogs and toads and things, but now we're going into the newt season and I would recommend you sort of look up your local R group and go out and get some field experience. And I think hopefully in the future we'll be looking at disease testing in the field as well with voluntary groups, which would be useful. And, yeah, just keep your hand in with, with you know, the field techniques, mm. you know, looking at ponds with torches habitat suitability indexes and stuff like that it's i think that sort of 
is dying out a little bit. It's going to eDNA and joining district licenses. So I, I would recommend that people keep up with their field skills, really. Wonderful. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah, exactly. So we still need to know the basics. Well, they're not even basics, you know, they're, they're you know, vital, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so we, we keep that alive. Counting newts in ponds is still useful. Mm. And it just, you know, I think we created a a population where we had 50 newts in the peak count and then we've got a population of over 225 newts in 2018 that was i think that would that be eight eight years so to see that many newts is is remarkable and it's good to have have that you know seeing what the newts look like and seeing their behavior look and and also looking for you you'll find perhaps new things that people have never seen before i mean I remember seeing, was it BBC Wild Isles or something like that, where horse leeches were engulfing common toad toadlets from ponds. Right. And, or Spring Watch, where adders were raiding birds' nests and things like that. If you're not out there, you, you won't see this behaviour that's never been seen before. So it's definitely, I think other taxa groups are having the same issues, really, that, you know, people are just not looking for invertebrates or you know flowers and plants and stuff like that so it's it's always good to get out in nature which is what we all we want people to be able to do don't we that's it yeah not not totally rely on say technology ai you know that you know we can't there's nothing more enjoyable i think than actually you know say as you as you rightly say you know going out there and seeing the animal or animals and plants of what uh, you know we 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 we're sort of taking for granted you know and what we're trying to conserve and uh, restore. yeah 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 so uh, you know you've got to get closer nature here we go because one last one last thing is mm. i was speaking to a colleague recently and they mentioned constantly about how the youth of today the generations today are disconnected with nature mm. and i think there are people that are you know dedicated conservationists or ecologists and I think these modern technologies, you're you're going to have a slight disconnect with with you know aquatic wildlife, for, for example, you know reduced just to a test tube. It's I think the I think that's really good, but also there's the ramifications of that of not knowing what what things look like, for example, and having that connection is important. I think everyone can agree that you need to keep connected with nature in order to value it. <laughs> so right, hopefully, consultants will. Well, we'll continue to do that into the future. Indeed, indeed. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on to the Ecology Academy podcast. Cheers. Thank you. If you enjoy our show and want to help, then please click on the subscribe button and rate us on your favourite podcast player, as that's how you can inspire ecologists in the making, help retain great talent and provide insights of our industry to a much wider audience of why ecology really does matter. Thank you. And remember, learning is a lifelong endeavour. So stay curious, be adventurous and build bridges for others to cross.